You might remember Nassim Taleb from the Black Swan book or Anti-Fragile. Okay. He had a term before he was canceled from Bitcoin for getting teased online and revealing he had a thin skin and then going to a BSV conference right, to troll the Bitcoiners or something. It was very childish. <laughs> But he said that there are some people who are educated, but idiotic. Do you think that that applies to Craig Wright? That is exactly the term I was trying to think of earlier, because I I did notice in the trial with Haldanot recently, Craig did seem to kind of regurgitate materials that he clearly read. He could cite things from the 80s, the 90s. He had these facts on file. And it's a bit like Star Trek technobabble. It kind of sounds correct on the surface. And if you're just watching along as a layman, you're like, oh, hey, that sounds good. When you listen to what he's saying, you're like, well, these things aren't actually related. So he doesn't quite understand it, but yet he seems to be able to recall it. That does really kind of describe it. Well, thanks to Bitcoin Magazine's video coverage, we have that techno babble available for all time. <laughs> we should make shirts out of it. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, October 28th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here as always with... Hey, hello, everybody. It's me. It's Chris. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Is this a slow news week? I can't tell. I think sort of. Have you seen how big our show doc is? Okay. If you go by show doc size, this is an oversized show. If you go by things that changed Bitcoin this week, not a lot of huge things. However, I think as you'll tell us here in a moment, there are some things coming up that may set some precedent, some big changes that are sort of just on the horizon, things getting set up right now. This week, we will give a shout out to Hodlnot's win over Craig Wright. Core Scientific, the North American Bitcoin miner, is on a bankruptcy watch as their missing payments for electricity for some of their mines. We have a huge report from the Justice Department on digital assets that contains a lot of interesting history, points of view, and a very scary section about civil forfeiture targeting crypto assets, basically weakening property rights. Luckily, Bitcoin was literally built to solve that. We'll take a humorous pause in tokenomics to enjoy Amy Castor's scathing coverage of Celsius and Voyager bankruptcies. And then the bulk of our episode will be Matt Levine's 40,000 word Bloomberg article. It's really a novella called The Only Crypto Story You Need. I really enjoyed this and I think that Matt will one day be a Bitcoiner. I don't think he's yet, but one day. I hope so. Then in Bitcoin education, we're going to summarize Bitcoin Optech 223 and get into a document in there, which is an introduction to Frost, which is a taproot multi-signature implementation. Might seem dry, but it's really important. Then we have some boosts, and that's our show. Pew, pew, pew. Uh, sticking with uh, Craig Tektoshi just, just for a moment, because this has been a, a great source of joy during the spare market, I have to say, I really, you know, I, I wasn't sure when we first heard he was going after Peter McCormick. I thought, uh, Oh, that doesn't sound good, especially in the jurisdiction he was going after him. But it, it went well, it seemed. And I thought, okay, this is good. And it was. It turned out we got a, got a little bit of a show. But when he went after Hodlnot, we saw the community come together in a bear market in a, I think, a really powerful way. And there was enough funds that were raised that he was really able to do a proper defense against Craig. Now we have like the results, right? We've got the verdict, and Craig has to pay up. Craig's strategy was to legally bully people by deploying more legal resources 
resources in an unfavorable jurisdiction, namely the United Kingdom, and basically bully people into either accepting a default judgment or not trying to challenge too many elements of Craig's case because it would be too expensive. Well, the tables were turned on him in the Hoddlenot case, and we actually have a ruling. The judge in the case has said that Hoddlenot had sufficient factual grounds to claim that Wright had lied and cheated in his attempt to prove that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. That's the judge agreeing with the verdict that Craig is a liar and a cheat. And now that's part of the legal record. It becomes part of precedent. This might be the derailment of Craig's strategy of legal bullying. I don't think that it'll mean he disappears because he needs to continue to pretend to be Satoshi Nakamoto so that he can receive funding from his brainwashed followers and his horrible sponsor, Calvin Ayer. But this, I believe, removes the legal threat from Craig. Yeah, the judge noted specifically that, uh, quote, Wright himself uses coarse slang and derogatory references. And so, in the court's view, must accept that others use similar jargon against him. That was in the judgment. Uh, of course, Hadonot's lawyers pointed out that you know there are similar cases of Craig throwing slang words at people that could be considered quite offensive. And so that was just sort of the nature of the discourse. And that's in the judgment. This strategy really paid off because the judge sort of said, you, you know, you're really failing to prove you are Satoshi and you sort of willingly damaged the best way to prove it. And that's controversial. You should probably accept that. And then also noted that he uses similar language and doesn't really have grounds to complain because that's the nature of the discourse. It really does seem like, at least in this jurisdiction, precedent has been set for this type of case. We recently saw, too, I shared a picture of this, a screenshot in our Bitcoin Matrix chat room where, again, for the second time in a week, somebody makes a statement about Bitcoin. Craig bites and says, no, you're absolutely wrong. He comes in super hot, sounds really arrogant. And then the person comes back and says, oh, sorry, that was just a direct quote from Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> and once again, gets him, just gets him where Craig starts arguing a point and then they say, oh, sorry, this is just the direct writing of Satoshi. I thought you'd know that. Craig, the king of can dish it, but can't take it. Called out. Continuing the character watch, Core Scientific is on bankruptcy watch, and that's a big deal because I believe they're considered the largest public Bitcoin mining operation. As I recall, the founder of Core Scientific, it's either Mike Levitt or Darren Feinstein, I forget which one, was not the earliest of Bitcoiners, but he was watching Bitcoin very early. And I think he was the first one to start the meme about Bitcoin being triple entry accounting. So in business, we have double entry accounting where assets and liabilities match and the account nets out to zero. But with Bitcoin, we also have the transaction on a blockchain. And he saw this as a revolution for doing business because now it eliminates a lot of business frauds because most fraud is accounting manipulations. But with Bitcoin, we kind of have this third column in every transaction, which is the blockchain, which is the source of truth. And of course, the big reaction to, oh, largest public mining company, what does this mean for Bitcoin. What's your take on that, Dad? Do you have a read? Yeah, Bitcoin doesn't care. Core Scientific took a risky strategy of mining into a bull run and not selling the top, even when there were technical indicators like the Mayer Multiple showing that historically Bitcoin was overvalued. Instead of selling at historically high prices to create a capital cushion or a cash cushion on their balance sheet that would enable them to operate during a bear market, they levered up by using 
their Bitcoin on the balance sheet to juice their stock valuation because they were trading like a Bitcoin ETF at the time. I'm under the impression that some of their loans, they used their mining rigs as collateral. But of course, as the price of the mining rigs has collapsed, their collateral value is collapsing. And so that's also another pressure they have. It really depends on how those deals are structured. If they can get their mining equipment valued at high valuations and then lock in that valuation, then it could be a relatively safe way to take leverage. But if there's a clause where the collateral is marked down around market prices for miners, that would be very risky. That would be more akin to a stock account margin loan, which is incredibly risky and you can lose your shirt on. So I think that this is another lesson about how you can be 99% right about Bitcoin. You can see its value. You can run serious professional mining operations. You can be an early adopter. But if you take too much leverage, if you get too confident about where you think the Bitcoin price is going, you get wrecked. And I think that's what happened to Core Scientific. I I think there must have been an underlying assumption that either A, price would always continue to go up because it's number go up technology, or that perhaps Bitcoin would be decoupled from any kind of significant macro environment. (laughs) The irony there is, of course, a lot of Bitcoiners are into Bitcoin because they understand how bad the macro situation is. So it just seems sort of funny in hindsight not to think it would also impact Bitcoin's price action. But uh, going beyond that, don't you think long term, this is sort of good for Bitcoin? Because if this company does go under and their mining rigs get sold off at wholesale prices, that just gets diffused out into the Bitcoin network. It gives an upstart an opportunity to pick up some high quality rigs at great prices. And it, it kind of moves the hash around again. And this is we go through these with these bear cycles. It's people like I remember before before the bear market really hit, the concern that we were hearing from the audience is what about the centralization of, of mining power? My answer was, is these things have a way of sort of sorting themselves out over time. Is that maybe the process we are seeing right now? Perhaps. I think that there's this idea that being a large Bitcoin miner gives you some sort of economy of scale. And in fact, there seems to be diseconomies of scale because as you get larger, you can't access cheap power because the super cheap electricity is stranded. It's on natural gas wells in the middle of nowhere. And by definition, that doesn't scale to a large operation. So smaller miners may have a lower cost basis and may be more advantaged in the Bitcoin mining game. But large miners, public companies have access to capital markets that allow them to do things like take huge leverage and borrow money at potentially favorable terms, which can give them a temporary advantage. At the end of the day, though, Bitcoin is not a financial asset that can be bailed out. And so it's sort of a source of truth in their business model that can't be papered over or hidden with leverage. And so I think that the mining business is a commodity game and there are successful long-term miners. See my episode with Malachi, which I think was released today, maybe. I I didn't know how to do an automatic release, so I think it was supposed to go out Wednesday, but it went out this morning. And that's a small company, relatively speaking, that operates Bitcoin mines and has done so for about 10 years. And they know what they're doing. Fascinating. Core may have tried to go too big, too fast. Tried to gobble up the market. They thought they could use this opportunity and cheap money to get, you know, a big chunk of land, basically, of the Bitcoin mining cash rate. Bitcoin is a story of hubris being punished time and time again. So this might be another chapter in that. I will find a link for the show notes, but just super quickly before we move off of mining. Last night, I don't know how recent the story was, but last night I watched a fantastic report on the CBC, the Canadian broadcast company, and they highlighted a hydroponics indoor farm. It's a small scale operation. 
Association that has a fishery that help produce fertilizer locally, and they also sell the fish. And that water is used in the hydroponics and to fertilize the vegetables. And the heat for the building is produced with Bitcoin mining. And they don't have a huge operation. Uh, they probably have like a dozen or maybe maybe a little bit more than that. It was a couple. Of, it was like a couple of shelves worth. And they use that heat to uh, to uh, help with the growing. And the whole operation's generating revenue. So the Bitcoin mining subsidizes the heat, the fish subsidize the fertilizer production, and they sell the vegetables. And uh, they do it all in a building downtown. It's really pretty neat. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes if I can find it. Wow. I'm not surprised that's in Canada because I've heard that the province of Quebec has enough excess hydropower to power the Bitcoin mining network four times over. So when you're in that environment, there's a lot of really interesting things you can do with excess power. Sounds like a really neat operation. Yeah, I do remember him specifically saying hydro was one of their advantages that they thought, well, what can we do with this? There is a pretty large Justice Department report on digital assets. And I dumped the PDF from the Justice Department into a Google cache. So I think that's maybe safer to click on. I don't know. I'm trying to do better with PDFs. But you could download it and then dissect it using string on the Linux command line. That's another option, but it would be hard to read. This report is kind of interesting because it gives you a window to how the Justice Department is thinking about and telegraphing their actions against crypto assets. And there's a lot of BS in here because they paint crypto criminals as very nefarious and their actions as very positive. But this report came out of the Biden executive order to study digital assets. And I think that the consensus view is that the energy report that came out of that Biden order was really bad. It basically relied on DeVries, the ditch economist, who's a Bitcoin hater with a flawed model that predicts that Bitcoin will consume a preposterous amount of global energy. And this report is good reading about the history of legal enforcements against crypto criminals. So they cover the Hydra market. They cover the Bitfinex hat. They kind of paint Razzlecon as a sophisticated cyber criminal, which I don't really buy because I've seen her YouTube rap videos and I just, I don't, I don't buy it. But hidden in this report is a very scary recommendation to make civil forfeiture of crypto assets easier. Civil forfeiture is a US specific constitutional violation that gives law enforcement agencies the ability to seize assets without any due process or a trial. And it's a scary tool. There's a limit on the amount that can be seized. That's half a million dollars, which is cold comfort. But I think that was designed to prevent law enforcement from seizing people's homes arbitrarily. But this civil forfeiture law has been a problem in the U.S. for a long time, even before Black Lives Matter and that focus on law enforcement as maybe they're not exactly your friend and maybe you need to be careful in your interactions with them. I remember reporting about police departments that took advantage of civil forfeiture to basically rob out-of-town motorists who drove on highways through these towns. And they would shake them down for money, essentially, and then seize any large amount of money or potentially valuable equipment that they were carrying. So civil forfeiture is a weakening of property rights. It's a weakening of legal protections. It's a weakening of due process. And I'm not surprised that it's being applied to crypto assets. And so this is the time 
to take note and get your crypto off of exchanges to begin to understand self-custody. You could try using a software wallet like Sparrow on a computer that you don't do any naughty browsing on and you kind of don't click on links on that computer. That would be one option. You could get a cold card. You could try a phone wallet. We recommend Samurai for private Bitcoin usage. There are some trade-offs with Samurai. Another option is to just use the Bitcoin Core GUI wallet. If you have a laptop with Mm. 600 gigs of hard drive space, you could install Bitcoin Core and use their GUI wallet on that. And it's a very good wallet, actually. I just want to double, though, for Sparrow. They just had a great update, including now a command line version that has a NCURSA style UI, which I think is just such a great idea for headless systems or Raspberry Pi boxes or something like that. The source for this is from Forbes, but it's a quote, so I think it's accurate. But that uh, that cap you mentioned, they want to remove the cap for cryptocurrency and other digital assets. So there would be no limit of the amount they could forfeit or whatever, I guess seize, I guess is the term. Right. And that creates a lot of bad incentives because, you know, no one really politically cares about people with crypto wealth. So that means they're yeah. kind of a quote unquote vulnerable or politically unrepresented group. And that means they could be targeted to fill holes in law enforcement budgets as the economy and government and financial system falls apart. There has been several cases where they got access to the funds by just accessing the individual's cloud account, Google Drive and Dropbox in some cases and OneDrive and um, and then binding the seed phrase in that account, either in a backup file or just in there as a file, and then using that to just restore their wallet and take the money. And so they never even had to go to their house. They never had to have a warrant. They, well, maybe they had to have a warrant to get to the cloud drive, but whatever they had, they never had to like physically go there and knock on the door. They didn't have to like even take it from Coinbase because the person had self-custody, but they did it wrong. They saved the seed phrase on the cloud. And I know it's it's tempting because you don't want to lose that, but you have to be very careful and you have to think about this in kind of a comprehensive way. And that's why we recommend Sparrow because you could start with Sparrow, then you could add your own node and you could kind of grow that out over time as you become more and more concerned about this. And each win you have with these things will give you the confidence to try the next. And there's there's just a lot of ways you can do this wrong. And if they're, if they're doing this civil forfeiture thing where they can take as much as they want, you have to imagine that the incentives is to grab that. I mean, it's just, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It really makes me sad. On the one hand, it's a signal that it's going to be open season on Bitcoiners soon. I think that's a signal I'm getting here. Now, that's a negative, right? Because you need to prepare for an adversarial environment. At the same time, Bitcoin was built for this. So it's time to put on our big kid pants and get adversarial. And that means self-custody. It means cleaning up your digital presence. Listen, those Coinbase buys you made, they're going to be there forever. But you can delete that Coinbase account and you can buy peer-to-peer using BISC or RoboSats. There's a new thing called Peach that looks like Tinder for buying Bitcoin. It's super weird. I I'm not sure I would try it, but okay, cool. New models, neat neat stuff. But we kind of need to get ready because while an adversarial environment is scary, it's a sign that Bitcoin is working because if it wasn't a challenge to the consensus financial system, they wouldn't need to attack it. And there is this established process of first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you. Well, like we've said before, Bitcoin is being fought against as institutions are joining and trying trying to co-opt it. Yeah. If you hold your own keys and you try to take reasonable precaution, I think you're going to be okay. It's our best shot. And the more people that do it, the better chance we all have. On the subject of holding your own keys, that leads in nicely to Amy 
Castro's coverage of the Celsius and Voyager drama. Maybe we don't need to get too deep into this, but there's a tie into Core Scientific because they're actually hosting Celsius's BS mining farm project, and Celsius isn't paying them for the electricity. And so this $25 million energy bill that Core Scientific sort of has to cover, this has actually been eating into their cash. And this is part of why Core Scientific is running out of cash and now on a bankruptcy watch list. Man, Core Scientific, they screwed around and they're finding out hard. They really, they touched the third rail in a lot of things in this last bear run. And yeah, so they're straddled with this. And of course, the other thing is this is Celsius was really kind of planning on their Bitcoin mining operation being their thing that repays everybody. And so now Core Scientific has asked the judge to make a decision on the matter and at least hold some sort of meeting so they can figure out what's going on because they can't just keep paying for this. Um, You know what does seem interesting, though, in here is that it seems that there may be a little bit of precedent set by this case, potentially, because there isn't necessarily any good legal precedent for, well, who owns the crypto that was in these accounts? Is it truly your keys, your coins, or is it, is there maybe, do you have some claim to these? And supposedly the judge wrote that, quote, cases involving cryptocurrency may raise legal issues for which there are no controlling legal precedents in the circuit or elsewhere in the United States or in other countries in which cases arise. So it seems he'll be using the Law Commission of England and Wales, a lengthy and detailed digital assets consultation paper as a framework. And in chapter 16, it talks about custody and what happens during an insolvency. And so potentially, if that is the guiding post for decisions that come down, that may set precedent for future cases in the U.S., maybe. And you can avoid all of this by simply not giving your Bitcoin to shady platforms that promise you ridiculous yields or even low yields, just self-custody. This idea that your money has to always be working for you, this is a very fiat mindset. Bitcoin is protecting you from currency debasement. It provides very strong assurances around being debased and transaction finality and ownership. All that other stuff, yield, it doesn't do because that's a higher level of the monetary stack. Bitcoin is a low-level technology. I don't know how much I like the idea of a crap show operation like Celsius being the one that ends up setting legal precedency for who actually actually owns that crypto. It doesn't seem right. They don't deserve it. I know. We don't get the heroes we want, but the ones we deserve. What does that say about us? (laughs) Oh, the crypto history stories will be something. But apparently there's only one crypto story you need, and it's Matt Levine's novella that was published on Bloomberg. We have a link to it, and I got to say, just read it. It's an overview of everything that's happened in quote-unquote crypto over the past two years. He has the entire Bitcoin white paper in there. He actually has a pretty cognizant understanding of what modern life is. He, He sees modern life and modern banking as a series of databases run by untrustworthy, technologically backwards organizations, just like you're always saying, Chris, those banking databases running on ancient hardware. Yeah, I've seen it and it's it's fright- frightening. Um, the things I have seen, the way that uh, the, the systems used to retrieve information and still do from those mainframes it is not necessarily secure. It's not necessarily something you'd want to see because they have to take something. From, it's an entirely different format, an entirely different architecture, an entirely different operating system. And then they have to bring that into your mobile app or your web or up on the uh, teller screen. And 
And the way they move the information between those two systems would keep you up at night. A little background. Matt Levine is probably considered the greatest financial columnist today. He has a, I've, he's definitely showed up on the show before. He has a weekly newsletter and Bloomberg pays him so that people are tempted to fork out $300 a year to read Bloomberg's website. But Matt is someone who is just a lively mind. He's really interested in financial markets and quote unquote crypto is like candy to someone who's interested in financial markets, because in many ways, crypto is speed running the last 5,000 years of financial development or history. I'm just going to give kind of a summary of some of the things he gets into, because this is a legitimate work of research. Matt is not a Bitcoiner yet, but I see the earworms that he's ingested studying Bitcoin and looking at the crypto markets. So I expect him to join us in time, Uh because... At the end of the day, the only project that really withstands serious intellectual scrutiny and even scientific evaluation is Bitcoin. Everything else fails in some situation except Bitcoin. So, okay, I mentioned that Matt thinks of banking and finance and even modern life as a series of databases run by trusted third parties who can kind of screw up or screw you. And you don't have a lot of control over how that happens. He sees Bitcoin as a different type of database. And I agree with a different security model. And he actually explains hashing functions really well. He talks about how Bitcoin is a actually a messaging protocol that signs messages, but actually so are modern banks, except modern banks don't do it in a trustless way. They do it in a trusted, unverifiable way, whereas Bitcoin is verifiable. So you're thinking, gosh, this guy like, sounds like a Bitcoiner. But then he says, listen, Bitcoin thinks it's a store of value, but it might just be game stock. Like we don't know because it's hard to separate separate narratives from reality. Like we live in a very chaotic world. So Bitcoin, its success, it might still be noise. He still has that question mark. To me, it seems like if you really dug into the asset, that question mark would start to go away. Like if he goes, if he does go further, I think that's one of the areas he'll have a better understanding, a little more clarity. I agree. He's done a lot of research. He compares proof of work and proof of stake. He talks about the blockchain trilemma. He notices that Web3 is a VC marketing scam, but then he also waste time describing Vitalik's concept of soul bonds, which is this weird Ethereum contract tied to your identity. So what's really happening here? Matt, I would say 98% gets it, but he's missing decentralization. He talks about decentralization, but he hasn't grokked it yet. Really grokking it is difficult. And I'm using the term grok. I think that's from um, Stranger from a Strange Land. It's this idea of you know something, but you also feel it. Like you've really internalized this knowledge. And decentralization is a cheap word that every scam per crypto project uses, but only Bitcoin is decentralized. Matt doesn't get to the point where he talks about the different hardware requirements for running Ethereum and Bitcoin. And again, I only mention Ethereum and Bitcoin because everything else is so clearly either irrelevant or a scam. Sorry to Monero, it's really interesting, but as we'll get into later with the story of Chinese spies, they used Bitcoin, not Monero. Why? Maybe they hadn't even heard of Monero. You know, that's a problem. So Matt doesn't quite get to the point where he can see that the physical requirements of decentralization for Ethereum are so high that they can't be achieved. And and actually, it's a network that's centralizing. Bitcoin, on the other hand, seems to be decentralizing as node counts increase, as it becomes simpler to run Bitcoin nodes, as the requirements for a Bitcoin node remain roughly the same while computer technology gets better 
better. I now have a new single board computer that can run a Bitcoin core node and verify the blockchain much faster than the Raspberry Pis of old. So in a way, technological inflation is reducing the cost of running Bitcoin for me. That's really interesting. And that's not happening with other blockchains. Right. Not at all. I think you really nailed it when you said that the other blockchains call themselves decentralized. And there's a big difference between hearing, okay, decentralized, I get it. I get why decentralized is good, right? That's one kind of aha moment. But then it's a whole other moment to understand what actually makes something properly decentralized and what are the elements you should be looking for. And I think it's even harder when all these other projects wrap themselves in the glory of Bitcoin and do call themselves decentralized. And they'll even not lie. They really don't come quite out and say and make it clear what the requirements are. And at first pass, you don't notice things like an Umbral community and the Nix Bitcoin community and the Citadel community that are building all these things. And there's just those communities just don't even exist for the other projects. But how would you see that unless you spent 10 hours on Matrix or Twitter or were digging through Reddit? You know, you just wouldn't know those things unless you were truly engrossing yourself in the community aspect of Bitcoin. It's the difference between spending years on Bitcoin and spending a year right. or months. Right. So Matt has definitely looked at it within the framework of traditional financial markets and these broad issues that are kind of hitting markets today, but he hasn't gone down the rabbit hole. And maybe that makes him more objective. Maybe Matt's right. And we are attributing store of value to Bitcoin, but it's actually everyone's going to get bored with it tomorrow and start speculating on GameStop. I don't think so, but he does have some reasonable uncertainty around Bitcoin. I would have been like, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe he's right five years into Bitcoin. Back then, I yeah, who knew? In fact, it seemed really likely that it would just fade away. But I, I think it would always start back up, even if the current somehow so many people lost interest, because maybe it stayed at a dollar for 15 years. Eventually, it would come back around because there is an aspect of human psychology about the scarcity element and the peer-to-peer -peer network element. The fact that you can send directly between two people, no institution required. There's always going to be people who want to exchange value that way. And you want a reliable technology and a reliable system to do it. And that's just a fundamental value aspect of Bitcoin. And it'll always be there, even if it's 10 users or 10 billion. And I think that this is an article to read and to also share with people who are critical of Bitcoin, because this is a critical voice. They can identify with that. But there are seeds of doubt inside this analysis that I believe leads to Bitcoin. Listen to this explanation of the modern banking system. The modern banking system is a machine that takes in risky assets at one end, takes senior claims on them, lending money against those assets with the right to be paid back first, repeats that move a few times, taking and issuing senior claims on the senior claims, and spits out dollars at the other end. A dollar is distilled from risky assets. A dollar is debt. This is saying the quiet part out loud. This is not economics 101 that everyone uses as a shortcut to pretend that the financial world they rely on is stable and safe and predictable. This is looking at how the sausage of the dollar is made and it's disgusting. It's scary. It doesn't predict a stable future. This is a 
future of problems, of volatility, of change. And he identifies that money is a social technology. He applies that to Bitcoin, pointing out that Bitcoin isn't just technology, but we can turn that observation back on the traditional dollar system. And he points out that technology suits certain applications. The Bitcoin database is very suitable for a world of databases. It's really quite a bullish piece on Bitcoin. And there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of nonsense about NFTs and DAOs and Celsius and whatnot. Who cares? It's kind of interesting history. But the core of it is a very bullish case for Bitcoin. So Matt, going to link to this podcast. Love to have you on. Really appreciate your contributions to the space. It's nice to see someone at his level with his following and his amount of respect covering this and seemingly trying to give it a fair shake. Well, I hope it gets all the way. I put in a link to one of your favorite economists, Chris, I think. Are you familiar with Stephen Hankey? Hankey? <laughs> yeah, okay. Professor of Applied Economics at John Hopkins. No, I don't know who he is. Senior fellow at the Independence. No, I've never heard of him. FX and Commodity Trader and worked at the Reagan White House. Um, he and I, we Snapchat all the time. Did you listen to that episode of Crypto Voices where Stephen Hankey went on, crapped all over Bitcoin, and then shilled an altcoin project and said, <laughs> you know, Bitcoin doesn't even have an exchange and my BS altcoin project has an exchange. That project has disappeared from his profile, by the, by the way. No one knows where it went. What a surprise. I'm sure it's done really well, though. I'm sure it's done really well. Uh, this is one of those individuals where you probably, dear listener, you'd probably see his face and be like, I know I've seen that guy like on Fox Business or on CNN or something like that. Like he's just been around forever because, well, he's been around forever. He's actually a serious monetary economist. He's run currency boards for countries where their currency is failing. So if they actually want to deal with the problem, you can call in Stephen Hankey, probably have to pay him a lot of money. And what he'll do is he'll basically set up a mechanism to peg your currency to the black market price of US dollars, which is the true demand price. And it will destroy the government budget, result in a new political consensus. But over time, you'll get things under control. Yeah. So he's made real contributions to monetary economics. At the same time, he's so arrogant and full of himself that he just is very anti-Bitcoin. In this tweet, he's pointing out that the Egyptian pound is falling off a cliff. It's down 14.8% in one day against the dollar. And Egypt is one of these quote unquote emerging market countries that are very reliant on importing food, importing energy. They actually have a subsidized bread program for their populace to kind of keep people from being hungry and being politically angry. And that was put under pressure by the war in Ukraine because they bought a lot of Ukrainian wheat. So this is like Sri Lanka, another example of financial systems at the periphery of the global system beginning to crack, beginning to implode. Probably the next step is some sort of debt crisis or government deficit issue. And they'll call in Hank for the hanky panky. Hanky for the panky. Um, so what am I supposed to be taking away from this is that Egypt is a sign that countries around the edges of the West are beginning to suffer. Like, what, what am I supposed to take away from this? Yeah, exactly. Remember when Sri Lanka was big news? Yeah. This is okay. another Sri Lanka in the works, I think. Ah, hmm. this seems like exactly what you said would happen about six months ago. Uh, you said that these countries would start to be the ones that would uh, suffer first. And it's exactly what's happening. Steve was also on the, should I mention the uh, John Stewart podcast? It was kind of interesting having him on there. He was like defending neoliberal economics because hmm. John Stewart was like, 
how come when there are bailouts, the common person always gets screwed? And Steve was like, yes, that's how the system works. And John was like, is there a way we could do this so the common person doesn't get screwed? And and Steve was like, no, it was <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a wild. That is great. I, yeah, that is. I think I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. You should kind of watch John Stewart get his mind blown about how the financial system actually works. <laughs> I know. And then like trying to recover afterwards and be like, yeah, but we were almost on the same page. And it's like, no, John, no, you have no idea. Yeah. Scratching the surface there. He should dig a little deeper. Would you go on John Stewart's pod? Sure. Sure. Yeah. What would I talk about? Bitcoin? Oh, I'd love to talk to John Stewart about Bitcoin. You might be a good guest because you could talk about Bitcoin and technology and, you know, lock-in, monopoly. You you really have a broad repertoire there. I'm going to become the uh, Bitcoin technical sales engineer one day, you know, for the Bitcoin company. That exists. There is a company called the Bitcoin company. I don't know what they do, though. They sell uh, a Bitcoin token. I don't know. <laughs> Just reminded me of last week when we discovered about the horrible Bitcoin website. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, you teased this earlier in the show. Let's talk about these Chinese spies. A big announcement by the U.S. government and in there for at least you and I was the surprise that these spies supposedly used Bitcoin and they also were clever enough to use the Wasabi wallet. Specifically, the Wasabi wallet is called out in here a couple of times. So first of all, this really doesn't matter because the transactions were identified because they were paying an FBI double agent. So it's not like Elliptic was tracking the source of these bitcoins. And in fact, you can see from Elliptic's graphic in this article, which is on archive.ph. So don't worry, you can click on it. They lose sight of the bitcoin before it enters the Wasabi wallet. They can only see what happens afterwards. And afterwards, these spies who they're technical enough to use the Wasabi wallet, but they're not technical enough to coin control because they merge their outputs from Wasabi wallet. And then they send them all to the same FBI double agent. So the double agent had their addresses. This is really a nothing burger. But then the double agent immediately sends it to a U.S. crypto exchange. What? Sorry. So, you know, if you send mixed Bitcoin into a crypto exchange, they're going to do chain analysis on it. And then they can ask you who sent it to you. And if it was a Chinese spy and you're a U.S. government employee, that might be an issue. Maybe uh, Coinbase does um, custodial services for the FBI. You know, they got a lot of Bitcoin these days. The last paragraph mentions that the Swiss Federal Intelligence Service has looked into using Bitcoin to pay spies abroad, while the Russian GRU, another military intelligence outfit also uses Bitcoin for foreign payments. So what can I say? Bitcoin is for everybody. Yeah, you know, intelligence agencies are generally at the cutting edge on this kind of stuff. So I th I take this as a bullish signal. Um, this is a great example of the kind of illegal activity I do believe happens on Bitcoin. I think using Bitcoin successfully like this requires a certain level of understanding, uh, a technical understanding that I think people in our local community here in Bitcoin often fail to understand. So the fact that these spies even knew to use wasabi i think is interesting and uh, that implies they understood the use of a coin join uh, which i think is also interesting i think that's above average technical understanding and so it makes sense that it would be intelligence agencies that would be able to understand that and provide that information to their agents so this is the kind of illegal activity i could totally see also political bribes i could totally buy that wall street shenanigans absolutely your common you know drug trades and that kind of stuff i don't believe that's happening as much on bitcoin because uh, i think most people would struggle to understand why they 
they shouldn't just leave their funds on Coinbase or something and they would get caught in a minute. So I, I, I buy it and I don't understand why they're not using something like Monero, but I think you might have a theory. My theory is that Monero is just not popular enough and I'd have to look at the price chart, but if it's more volatile than Bitcoin, that could also be an issue. So, you know, there are these brutal network effects. They're not always a good thing. And I think that alternatives to Bitcoin, even when developed in good faith, struggle against the Bitcoin adoption network effect. And also to live in the same space, that of a cryptocurrency with Bitcoin is difficult because you can't use the popular SHA-256 hashing algorithm because then Bitcoin miners will, on a whim, destroy your chain, which is what's happened to BSV. And this isn't a Bitcoin problem, but Zcash, another privacy coin, has been subject to chain attacks recently. And remember, these were serious top five cryptocurrencies years ago, and now they're nothing. So once you fall out from the top two, it seems that the next step is down to number 80 or something. And that's happened time and time again. And unfortunately, Monero has fallen out of that top 10 already. So we'll see if this is the one that comes back, but hmm. it's probably a slow decline to irrelevance Ooh. if history is any guide. Spicy take from dad on Monero. It seems like if there was ever going to be one that does kind of just bounce around, it, it would probably be Monero because there's always somebody that wants a privacy coin. But hey, I'm, I'm keeping my Monero node online, so I'm doing my part. You know what surprises me? It doesn't surprise me. You know what I find interesting about this is that there clearly wasn't a stable coin that could do the job because sucks to be that Chinese spy. If you know you think you're getting paid at the top of the market, oh, when it's around 60,000, you're like, yeah, this is great. And then you're, you know, you're in the States, you're doing your biz for a while, you're doing your spy stuff and there's a crash and now it's down at 20,000. Man, that's a bad deal. That's a bad deal for a payment. And so you'd think they'd want a stable coin, but clearly DAI wasn't sufficiently decentralized enough for them. <laughs> or too complicated. Yeah. Maybe they could have used one of those stable sats or sent it onto Liquid and exchanged it for Liquid Tether or something like that. Because Liquid has confidential transactions, there's more privacy. But listen, the options are very complicated. Yeah, they would help them to understand Lightning, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe they got burned by Terra, and so they just had to jump over to Bitcoin. Didn't have a chance to learn about Lightning or sidechains and none of that. <laughs> That'll be down the road. Yeah, it, well, if they got burned by Terra, maybe they'll join that group of Terra holders who are flying around the world hunting for Doquan. I just wonder what they're going to do when they find him. I'm sure they're probably going to shake his hand and thank him for all his hard work. <laughs> I could imagine them holding his feet over the edge of a, a, a big drop and kind of shaking him to see if any something, any bitcoins fall out of his pockets, maybe. I'd say step one is you got to buy his dinner. That's step one. You got to pay food night. You're buying. Right. Have a night out on the town. But you know, Doquan, he try and take you to a club, get you really drunk and then ditch you with the tab. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my show, Self-Hosted. You know, we go over there and we do self-hosted stuff, you know, sovereign stuff with your data. Check it out over there at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We got all kinds of great shows, and I think you'll particularly like the Self-Hosted podcast. You can find it directly at selfhosted.show or search in your podcast app of choice, preferably a podcasting 2.0 app. Well, I'm looking at the Self-Hosted archives because I'm setting up that new Rock 5 Model B single board computer. It's beefy. It's no Odroid H3, but it's beefy. Yeah, I am. I am swimming in great low-power home hardware right now. The Odroid, and also I got this little x86 box, this appliance that's built into the Tesla Powerwalls, and they had a Powerwall go bad on my road trip, and I, the listener had one, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll happily take that. Thank you. That's super cool. And that's a pretty sweet little x86 box that I think I might turn into a, a mobile node in the RV. We'll see. This week in Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 223, which is a lot of updates. I would say nothing really new except a section on Frost. So maybe 
maybe we should just talk about Frost. What do you think? Is the season talk about Frost? <laughs> I don't know. Before you go there, though, I actually thought the discussion about moving Bitcoin Core, maybe potentially off of GitHub or just discussing the benefits of continuing to use GitHub and its PR management solutions. As somebody who follows open source projects for a living, I find that kind of stuff really interesting because it, it has a dramatic impact on participation with many projects. It's just one of those behind the scenes things that I'm going to be fascinated to see where it goes. That is a debate. I feel like my two cents is you want to keep it on GitHub as long as possible for the network effect, but make sure that you're backing up the data to your own local Gitia or GitLab instances. Eventually, GitHub becomes such a pain to deal with. Maybe they add KYC or something that you you can then fail over to right. a solution with a lower network effect, but you have at least backed up the data. That's my two cents. I completely agree. I, I definitely think that's the direction I should go. It's not bad to be on there for now, but I could see if things got really bad, if that they fight you stage got really nasty, I definitely see why they wouldn't want to be on a Microsoft owned. Now, I mentioned Frost. Frost is a taproot multi-sig implementation. So multi-sig is a property of these keys we use to validate Bitcoin transactions. And you can validate a transaction with multiple keys. And some transactions, they're actually little programs that say things like this Bitcoin can only be moved if two of these three keys sign it. Now, the cool thing about Schnorr signatures, which is the signature scheme that was added to Bitcoin using Taproot, is that Schnorr signatures can be added together and they're still valid. So in previous multi-signature schemes, there were literally two of three keys in the transaction. Like looking at the blockchain, I can see two keys there. But with Schnorr signatures, we can take a multi-sig and we can add the keys together and just put a single key on the blockchain. This is good for privacy. It's good for scalability because there's less data on the chain. It's really an advantage. However, it turns out that this scheme is complicated. All of these key schemes have different properties and they have to be implemented correctly or nothing works and we lose our coins and it's a disaster. Right now, there are two projects to build multi-sig on Schnorr using this taproot technology. One is called Musig2 and one is called Frost. Now, I'm sorry, I'm going to define some terms here. Bitcoiners actually misuse the cryptographic term multi-sig. Multi-sig in cryptography means N of N. That means if there are five keys to move this Bitcoin, you need five keys to sign it. And if one key is with one person, that means all five people in the multi-sig quorum or contract need to sign this transaction to move the Bitcoin. Notice I said contract. I would say multi-sig is a form of smart contract just a thought. So in Bitcoin, we often say two of three multi-sig. That's technically incorrect coming from a cryptographic standpoint because they would say that's a threshold signature. Your threshold signature is two of three keys, whereas multi-signature would mean three of three keys in that example. Musig2 is a taproot multi-sig scheme. It's three of three, N of N. It means that, yes, we put only a signal signature on this transaction, but if it's a 10 of 10 multi-sig, then we need 10 keys on there. It's a multi-sig, not a threshold signature. Frost is a threshold signature. And that means that you can do two of three keys, three of five, five of 10, things like that. Things that we might call multi-sig intuitively on Bitcoin. Yeah, Frost actually, that sounds kind of nice. Hadn't really paid much attention to this because I feel like these are the types of things that I just wait to kind of over time develop. But, you know, if I had to place bets on one right now, I'm kind of liking the sound of Frost so far. Now, what's the trade-off? 
trade-off is that for MuSig 2, for this multi-sig, it's actually simpler to aggregate the keys together. You need two rounds to aggregate the keys together versus Frost, which currently needs four steps to create the Frost threshold signature scheme. Now, this isn't an issue if you're creating the Frost scheme for yourself because it's your cold storage multi-sig. So if you have to take four steps, you can do it in software on your computer. It'll be instantaneous. You won't even notice. But these four rounds actually become a little complicated and might be able to be attacked if we're creating this scheme remotely among participants who don't necessarily trust each other. So this piece on Frost is actually a Q&A about distributed key generation and thinking about potential attacks or if there are attacks, they, they claim there isn't, and the complexities of generating Frost keys among different parties who aren't just sitting down at a computer together and doing it right there. They're maybe geographically separated. They need to generate this threshold signature scheme to kind of enforce some consensus over some funds. Maybe it's a corporation or something like that. And it gets complicated implementing these technologies in the wild. And so that's what this piece details. It's a little technical, but it might be worth a read if you're interested in that development and thinking about when it's going to land in Bitcoin and be ready for you to use. Once again, Bitcoin Optech delivering number 223 is linked in the notes. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. Also consider joining our Matrix channel, which is generously hosted by Jupiter Broadcasting. There's a link in the show notes and you can join using a client like Element, which is available on mobile and on any desktop operating system. Including your web browser too. So you don't actually even have to install anything if you just want to put it in a tab. I love it. I think it's really gotten a lot better. Element's really become an awesome communications tool for me. So if you haven't checked it out, it could be worth the time. We have details for that server. All of the rooms are at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. The Bitcoin Dad Pod is a podcasting 2.0 enabled show. Other than Jupiter Broadcasting, which of course is a big, fat corporate sponsor showering us in money. Oh my gosh. I just count my shekels by the minute or second as I record this podcast. Isn't that right, Chris? Yeah, you know, you're making so much money now that we actually had to uh, turn down the dial on stuff because people might hear too much quality, you know, because of all the gear upgrades from all the money being made. <laughs> lol. Oh. Lol. No. No, it's a You've passion. been recording remotely, so if you hear distortion, that's part of the challenge. It's a work Sorry. Of, it's a it's a work of art and love, you know, for the Bitcoin community. Although those boosts help. They certainly do, and they're a great way to communicate with the show, send in suggestions, criticize us, share conspiracy theories, share the work of right-wing, alt-right thinkers that I really disagree with and will take a swing at if you boost it in, but I'll read it. We should put a request out there for some boosts that talk about like a Bitcoin win they had. Like the moment they get worse, they self-custodied, or the moment they had a conversation with somebody and they got it. I'd like to hear like some, you know, a little good news in the boost segment. Sure. It's a good moment. I, you know, if anybody has a little win story, just some positive vibes for the boost segment, go grab a podcasting 2.0 app and send one in. I've been hearing from people, too, that just using Podverse on the web is uh, pretty easy, too, and then you don't have to change apps or anything. And we have some boosts. Our first boost from Baffo 9999 Sats. Big boost. Who says, me likey BCPD, which I believe stands for Bitcoin Dad Pod. Thanks so much, Baffo. Pew pew. I like, I didn't really think of the acronym before, BCDP. They also sent in 2121 Sats, a little bit more, to just ask, do boosts work? They do. And the more you boost, the more they work. They certainly do. 
Awesome Matt boosted in with 6969 sat saying lol. Yes, there's essentially a $500 copay for crowd health, but it functions much like an HSA, essentially. My mom has an FSA for us growing up, so that wasn't that unfamiliar of a concept to me. The fees you pay don't go to crowd health. 80% of your monthly fee goes directly to your own savings account, which is then used for those copays as well as to assist others when they are in need. It's kind of neat, and I would implore you to give it a second look. Hey, thanks a lot, Austin, Matt. I think I was a little critical on crowd health when I mentioned it before. I hadn't really looked into it, and that makes a lot more sense. I guess it seems like kind of another Bitcoin savings vehicle, but you know, with the volatility of medical expenses and Bitcoin, that seems like it might be great or it might be a real issue. You know, so I also looked a little bit into it. And so they have a Bitcoin plan and a non-Bitcoin plan. And the Bitcoin plan is something like 20% is kept in fiat, and then the rest is saved in Bitcoin, and they do the custody for you on both those. I believe the fiat is saved in an FDIC insured account. And I think I dug around and I think the Bitcoin is like a well-known custodial like Prime Trust or someone like that. You no, know, the Coinbase, something, something. So that's interesting. You know, um, you're kind of basically doing a speculative future prediction that your health will last and Bitcoin price will go up. You know, I don't know. We'll see. I guess it's another way to sort of stack. I believe you're also able to withdraw the funds, although I don't think there's been any clarity on how you would withdraw the Bitcoin. When I dug around on their site, it's a little opaque on how that Bitcoin aspect works. And so they're only doing it with a small, I think they call it crowd is their term. I think it's interesting to watch that. Uh, I find that to be fascinating. I think crowd health is a viable solution if there aren't alternatives to you and you have the ability to get something like catastrophic insurance because you're going to want that with something like crowd health. And I think the other thing you have to consider is you have to kind of be willing to play a game. And that game is you have to be willing to shop around, maybe travel even for a major procedure. If you can go somewhere that will accept cash a lot cheaper, uh, you have to be willing to kind of negotiate. You have to be willing to not sign documents sometimes in some cases. We and you're there for, for help. And all of that can be really scary and challenging when you're in the middle of an emergency. But if you're the personality type that is comfortable doing that kind of stuff, and then you're comfortable with crowd health negotiating and, and maybe suggesting you go somewhere else, I think it's worth considering. I think maybe it could be a solution for some people out there. It's kind of unfortunate that the state of health insurance in the U.S. is this, but I know it can be hard for a lot of us. We received a mega boost from Crypto Kyle, 23,123 sats. No, that's not a palindrome. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's a message. It's a great boost, though. It uh, kind of makes up for the fact that there's low boost this week. So thank you, Crypto Kyle. Yeah, thanks a lot. Who says, use Firefox container tabs. You can containerize your websites so the only cookies they see are their own. I totally second that, and I do use them. I think that Crypto Kyle is referring to a Molvad article I shared about cleaning up your browsing habits. And I mentioned that I had maybe a little, some bad habits that I <laughs> needed to work on. So container tabs are the way to go. You can go in Firefox to the add-on section and just search for Firefox container ads. It is great. Isn't it built in now? I think it's built in now. Firefox has been going from strength to strength recently. And I think integrating the containers was one of them. So nice to hear something positive about Mozilla for once. I think Firefox has been getting really good. I think they've made a lot of improvements specifically for Linux users recently. And it's a great experience on the Wayland desktop. I'm really happy with it. I think Bitcoiners should try to use those types of products as much as possible. Things that are a little more independent, um, open source, just have a preference towards that. If you're on Chrome right now and you haven't tried Firefox out for a little while, give Firefox a try. For sure. 
Marcel boosted in with some Enterprise Sat 1701. It's just another great show. Thanks, Chris and Dad. Thank you, Marcel. You know, I, I want to encourage people to boost in, even if they don't have something profound. I think sometimes people, they wait for some great comment and then boost in, and then they never get around to boosting. But I encourage you to just send a boost in because it's great motivation. Uh, I have Helipad open all the time. And I, you know, every time I see a boost come in for the Bitcoin Dad pod, I get a nice big smile because it's uh, something kind of special about using the technology we talk about in this way. I love it. Such a great application of it. It really uh, helps to connect with people who are listening. And it's a great way to send your views to the show. You don't even have to. You can just stream sats, which is nice, too. We get these little pings. Yeah. Yeah. Five sats, 10 sats, 20 sats here. That's really we cool. We did get a couple of just straight up boosts with no message this week. So thank you out there. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, October 28th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me. Oh, Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.